0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org.
1: We're continuing our theme that we began last week on principles for serving God. We came up with four principles. And this week we want to continue that list. And if you can recall from last week, if you were here... We read Acts chapter 16, verse 9 and 10, where we're told God gave Paul and Silas this vision of a man from Macedonia who was pleading with Paul and Silas to come to Macedonia and to share the message of Christ with them there. And so it was in this context that they then traveled to this area, which is located within Greece. Now, it's important for us to recall that because there are some events that start to unfold in this passage that otherwise, if if Paul didn't get that vision, might be a little bit confusing to him. And we'll see that as we uh, get to the end of that story. So let's begin in verse 1, or sorry, verse 11. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed across the island of Samothrace. And the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. Now, I neglected to mention this a couple weeks ago. We're hitting a section of the book of Acts that scholars have named the We Passages. This is where uh, the author moves from talking about Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas to then we. So apparently, the author, Luke, joins Paul and Silas on this journey. They pick him up. And at this point, whenever you encounter these wee passages, the detail in the account just skyrockets. And, you know, Luke is just describing all these different things that in most parts of the narrative, he's just glossing over. I think that that lends credibility to the authenticity of the book of Acts, that it was actually written by Luke, and that these were eyewitness events in the, in the wee passages. And I think that it also makes the stance that critics of the Bible take toward the Bible um, really difficult, because the cynical point of view that they take toward the Bible you have to sort of square that with what you see in these wee passages where if we're to accept that the book of Acts was written hundreds of years later by maybe Luke's disciples, and they're trying to pretend as though they are writing from Luke's perspective, then we're also assuming that as they were trying to purposely deceive us, people reading this you know, hundreds or thousands of years later, that they were considering, you know, how could we make this seem more authentic? Maybe we should, in, maybe we should switch to the uh, first person plural. And that way people will think, you know, and then we'll, we'll add a lot more detail in these sections. And that way, you know, those people hundreds of years later will think that this is actually authentic. That's a pretty cynical point of view. I think a better explanation would be that Luke actually wrote this section, and that he saw these events with his own eyes. Well, he says that they reached this city of Philippi. We know a lot about this city from ancient excavation. Philippi was established by King Philip II of Macedon, who happens to be the father of Alexander the Great. He established this city around the 4th century. It was a major city in that district... By ancient standards, it was a big city. Today, it would be pretty small. There was about 2,000 inhabitants in that city. They were well known for the gold mines surrounding the city, and that's why they established it, in order to be able to extract the gold from this area. We're told on the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. So we should unpack some of the details Luke's giving us. First of all, he says that they went out to this area right outside the city where people were meeting for prayer. And Luke includes a detail that they sat down and spoke with some women, which gives us a clue into why they didn't go to a synagogue. If you read through the book of Acts, that was sort of their routine. Whenever they would go into a city, they would stop first at a synagogue and they would start sharing the message of Christ with the Jewish people. And then they would move outward to the rest of the people in the city. But in this case, they they skip over that and they go out to this meeting place for prayer. Now, according to ancient Jewish custom... If you didn't have 10 believing Jewish men in a city, then you didn't have a quorum, and therefore you could not have a synagogue. So it's likely that there weren't that many believing Jewish people in this area, and so the women put together a prayer meeting right outside the city. Well, we're told that as they were meeting these women, one of the women that they encountered was this woman Lydia. And... We're told that she's from this area of Thyatira. Um, Thyatira was a city known for its textiles and the dyeing industry there. And we're also told that she was a merchant of expensive purple cloth, which tells us a little bit about the social status that she held in Philippi. Purple cloth was very difficult to manufacture because in order to get purple or blue dye... You needed to extract it from, you know, snails or different shellfish. And it was very time-consuming. And uh, many of these animals that they were extracting it from, they, they were very rare. Typically, only the, the arist, uh, aristocracy or the, the rich people in society would have purple or blue garments. So Lydia probably was a successful businesswoman who rubbed shoulders with the upper crust of society. And we're also told that she had an entire household, and she ran it. So, you know, Lydia was sort of like this really sharp type A businesswoman, and turns out she's going to be the first person who comes to Christ in this city. We're also told that she's a worshiper of God. That's significant as well. She was a a God-fearing Greek or Gentile. Her name indicates that she wasn't Jewish. And so this woman probably saw through the emptiness of the polytheism of her culture or the syncretism. And she longed for something more and stumbled across Judaism. But even in that, found that there was still something missing. That working your way to God based on the Jewish teaching at the time, that that wasn't satisfying, that that wasn't adequate in order to get right with God. Well, we're told that as she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we finally agree. So... She was listening to Paul and Silas as they were speaking about the message of Christ. And this literally means she kept on listening. And I think this tells us that what happened was she was listening to their reasoning, listening to the evidence that they were laying out, probably from the Old Testament prophecy that we've studied in previous weeks, And at some point, God opened up her heart, or really her mind, in order to be able to understand the message of Christ. And so she got to the point where she sensed, these guys have something to offer. And God opened up her heart so that she could actually have faith. Now, you know, some of us might be sitting here, and we might be able to relate to maybe the position that she's in, you know. Maybe we don't have a lot of big problems in our life. Maybe we don't have tons of addiction. We're a relatively good person. We do well in school. We're pretty successful, and yet we sense that something is missing in our lives, just like this woman. And maybe that's what brought us here, this sense that no matter what I throw into this void that I feel in my life, that something still remains missing. Well, she says to them after coming to Christ, come and stay at my home. And this is interesting because Paul and Silas essentially use Lydia's home as the base of operation for the rest of the work that they do there in Philippi. And this brings us to our first principle of this passage. Since we started uh, talking about this in our last uh, teaching, this brings us to principle number five which is keep your eyes peeled for the person of peace. Um, Jesus, when he sent out the 72 disciples during his ministry to preach the message of the kingdom of God and to go and heal and, um, you know, cast out demons, one of the things he instructed them to do was that whenever you go into a city, I want you to go and find the person of peace, the man of peace. This represented somebody who was receptive to their message. And he says, stay at that person's house and then use that as a base of operation to go and meet other people within that town. So essentially, Paul and Silas were following this same pattern where they decided that, okay, God has put this woman Lydia in my path and she's the person of peace in this city And we're going to use this as a base of operation to expand the message of Christ in this city. Now, for the modern day, I think God will put people of peace in our lives. That is, individuals who seem receptive to the message of Christ. And they then can become bridges to entire groups of people, their friends, who might also be receptive to Christ. But... I think that from this passage, we can infer that, you know, Paul wasn't just like sitting there waiting for this woman to come to him and present herself as a woman of peace. He was probably out there talking to a bunch of people, and then she's the one who came and showed some interest, and then he continued to talk to her even more. And so I think for us, this means that we need to so broadly, so to speak, where we're sharing the message of Christ with lots of people, and in some cases, we're going to have to talk to dozens of people and get some rejections before we finally stumble across the person of peace that God might be putting in our lives. I also think this implies that we should help receptive people reach out to their own friends. You know, when somebody receives Christ, we're not to suggest that they cut themselves off from their friends and try to insulate themselves with Christian community. No. What God wants is for us to be able to mobilize these individuals to help them reach out to their friends. You know, we shouldn't view their friends as a threat. We should view them as people who need Christ just as much as anyone else. Well, one day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money from her, uh, for her masters by telling fortunes. And so she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Okay, some odd details here. First of all, Luke tells us that she was a slave girl. She was probably a a Greek girl who grew up in this system of slavery that was was, huge in the ancient world. So she represented somebody who um, would be the vulnerable of society, the type of individual who uh, just gets used by people. And um, we're told that she had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. Literally, if you look at the Greek, it, it says she possessed the spirit of a python. Okay? Now, this doesn't make too much sense to us, but uh, in the ancient world, Greek mythology taught that Apollos actually embodied, uh, his spirit embodied the python, or sorry, the, the, the python embodied his spirit. And so uh, he would have these pythonesses that would be his followers and that uh, the, the spirit or power of the python would go out to them. And they actually had the capability to predict the future. And so we're told that Luke doesn't see this as some form of Greek mythology. He says that this woman was possessed by a demon. The Bible actually teaches that whenever we uh, try to worship false gods, that we're actually getting in contact with spirit beings who are not gods at all, but angelic beings who have rebelled against God. The Bible teaches that there is only one true God. But that there are a host of angels that have set up a rebellion against God. And that those angelic beings aim to try to, to divide, to try to drive a wedge between man and God, forever separating us from Him. Um, in animistic religion, we see that it's very common for the gods to impart gifts or special powers to their followers, but in exchange, they are to give a certain amount of influence. And you see this still today, where people who follow spiritism or get into uh, New Age spirituality or the occult, that they claim to be able to have these special powers, to be able to predict the future. I remember talking to a high school student a number of years back, he seemed fairly interested in the message of Christ. And so over the course of weeks, I would talk to him about spiritual things, and I sensed that he was like right on the verge of receiving Christ. And I said, you know, so what's holding you back? He's like, I don't know. I just feel like there's this hold up and I, I can't explain it. So after a few more weeks of talking to him and asking him questions about spiritual things, he finally busted out that... His family was involved in the occult. That his mother and his grandmother were priestesses. And that from a very young age, he had this unique ability to tell the future. And he gave me this example. He said, You know, one time I was sitting in front of my house in Westerville. And he said, It was on a summer day. And I remember I kind of snapped into this trance like state. And I got a vision of two cars colliding with each other right in front of my house. And he said, five minutes later, he said, a car turned onto my street, speeding and lost control, went left of center and hit another car head on, right in front of my house. And he's like, it's not uncommon for me to have these kind of experiences where I can actually foretell future events. And so he said, you know, one of the things that's actually holding me up in this process is that I'm afraid that if I turn my life over to Christ, then I'm going to lose this ability that I've had ever since I was young. And he's like, what do you think? And I'm like, well, I, don't, I think if it's not from God, it probably won't be there afterwards if you receive Christ. And we never saw him again. And so, um, you know, the evil one, God's enemy, will actually grant favors or impart power in exchange for influence. And of course, uh, the most amount of influence we can give over to God's enemy would be possession, like in the case of this woman. Now, you know, as modern Western people, we're just like, that is crazy. I've never seen anything like that. That just seems so unrealistic. And yet, in many cultures throughout the world, people shamans will actually try to invoke the spirits to come and possess them as a part of their worship of that God. I was watching um, that show Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern. Have you ever seen that before? Where he just uh, goes from different cultures and he just eats real creepy things. He was, uh, I remember seeing this one show where he was out in the Kalahari And they invited him to come to this thing called the uh, trance dance. Uh, And I want to show you guys a little clip of it. You get a feeling of what I'm talking about.
0: Tonight, I'll be seeing what may be the world's oldest spiritual ritual that's still in practice. This is a trance dance. There are prehistoric rock paintings suggesting something like this was happening here 20,000 years ago. In trance, a shaman's soul leaves the body, and he's possessed by the spirits of the ancestors. The men put themselves into trance by slowly, rhythmically circling the fire, wearing rattles made from caterpillar cocoons. Cow is the eldest, most powerful shaman of this group. He's the first to show signs of trance. When the ancestral spirits enter him, they'll bring the power to heal. comes back, physically anyway, spiritually, he still seems very far away. And I seem to be slipping farther away from the world as I know it. The clapping stops for a moment. And in that moment, She reaches down to touch me. Something happened in that moment like nothing I've ever experienced. It's just so powerful, it just brings tears to my eyes. And I can't explain it at all. It's just very, 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 very personal.
1: Andrew Zimmern claims to be an atheist. He, he does not believe in God at all. And yet he was describing this strange experience. You know, I grew up in a background where, you know, my parents grew up uh, in the Philippines, came over, and they would always describe these stories about, you know, how people in the Philippines would. Um, go to a, a witch doctor and actually pay somebody money in order to curse people who uh, had backstabbed them or done them wrong. You know, in the Philippines, it's very common to have uh, sort of a mixture of voodoo worship and, uh, and Catholicism. I don't know, I mean, you may come from a background where, you know, this sort of thing just seems sort of unreal. but. The Bible teaches that there's a spiritual realm, a reality out there, and that when we come into contact with spirits, that we need to be careful that we're not contacting those who are opposed to God. In fact, the Bible adamantly warns us not to get involved in occult practices. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 through 11, we're told, when you enter the land of the Lord your God... Be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. Do not let your people practice fortune-telling or sorcery or interpreting omens or engaging in witchcraft or casting of spells or function as mediums or or psychics or call forth the spirits of the dead. You know, today, the modern equivalent of this would be reading of tea leaves, tarot cards, uh, trying to contact the dead... And uh, the Bible says that we should stay away from this because we're not certain who we are contacting. You know, some people might say, well, I'm into good spirits. You know, the, the, the spirits that I contact, they're actually good, they're benevolent. The question that I would raise would be, how do you know? You know, if somebody just walked up to your door you know, and knocked on your door and said, hey, um, you let me in your house? Would you be like, yeah, come on in, have a seat on my couch? (laughs) If you didn't know that person, you would exercise extreme caution, wouldn't you? Because you don't know who this person is, even if they have a, a warm, genuine smile. You'd be cautious. And likewise, don't you think that if God's enemy wanted to try to infiltrate your life by gaining more and more influence through the occult, that he would masquerade himself as a good spirit? And so we should be careful. Well, anyway, we're told that this woman just kept shouting, these are servants of the Most High God, and they've come to tell you how to be saved. Now, it seems a little bit weird that she would be yelling this on behalf of the apostles, right? Why why is she trying to do their work for them if she's working for the other side? Well, it was very common for scholars to come into a city and to lay out their new theory or philosophy or worldview for how to receive salvation. So it wasn't uncommon for, you know, somebody to do this, to come into a city with some new ideas, Well, we're told in verse 18 that this went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of of Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. This must have been going on for some time. We're told this went on day after day. Can you imagine how awkward that would be? You know, you're just walking around campus, and somebody's just following you, shouting. This guy's a Christian! You should listen to him! He's telling you how you need to be saved. This guy, he's a Christian! He's going to tell you how to be saved. This guy, he's a Christian! He's going to tell you how to be saved. See, I did that three times. That was really weird, right? (laughs) Imagine, you know, somebody following you around saying that 40 times a day and doing that for several days. You know, people would be like, whoa, what? Who is this creepy person walking around, uh, you know, with this woman who's just yelling at him? I don't understand. And uh, we're told that Paul was so exasperated, uh, literally that uh, he was so annoyed with her that then he cast the demon out of her. So that might have been part of the evil one's motive in all of this, to discredit Paul by making, you know, this scene so odious to the people in the city that they were just raising their eyebrows like, what is going on here? And this leads us to our sixth principles, which is that we're engaged in a fierce spiritual conflict. You know, we are at the center of a battle that is raging between God and his enemy. And that essentially God's enemy seeks to try to prevent people from ever coming to know Christ. That that's his aim. He's angry at God and he knows that the best way to get back at God is to attack his people whom he loves. Now, you might be sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure I believe in like Satan and demons. I mean, that's a little far-fetched. And yet, current surveys suggest that the majority of people in our culture, like on the order of 80% of people in America, believe that some sort of benevolent God exists. And yet, is it that much of a stretch to believe that there is an evil counterpart? Somebody who is opposing God's purposes? I mean, after all, how do we account for all the evil and destruction in the world? Are we to suggest that God both manufacture the good and evil in the world it's more likely that god is being opposed by his enemy and the bible teaches that that's satan and so we need to have eyes to see this battle that we're engaged in if we're to serve god her master's hope of wealth were now shattered so they grab paul and silas and drag them before the authorities of the marketplace And the whole city, city, they said, is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. This uh, statement that they make here clues us into how they were trying to trap Paul and Silas. You know, as they saw their prophets fly away, as this woman came to her right mind after being cleansed of this evil spirit, they were trying to incite the bigotry that was common in the ancient world. Most people in the ancient world hated Jewish people, and so they were, they were hedging their bets on the anti-Semitism that was present in that city. And so they were like, yeah, you know, these Jews over here, they're the ones who are starting this, this uproar in the city. And they, they went on to say they're teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. Officially, You are not allowed to practice any religion that wasn't sanctioned by the Roman government. But practically speaking, the Romans sort of turned a blind eye if you practice a religion that didn't interfere with Roman custom or law. And so they knew that this was a serious charge against Paul and Silas to suggest that they were preaching a message, declaring a message that was undermining the authority of Rome. Well, a mobly quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods right in the middle of the Agora, which was the marketplace. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape. And so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet into stocks. Luke says that they were severely beaten. They would take these elm rods that were... You know, they weren't small sticks. These were probably like smaller baseball bats. And they would just continually beat somebody on their back. In some cases, um, people would die because of uh, the internal bleeding that it would cause. Can you imagine? These guys are sitting in this inner prison. You know, this would be like solitary confinement sitting up against the wall as their backs are beginning to swell from this fresh beating that they just took. Meanwhile, they can't even move because their legs are locked into these stocks, so they can't even get comfortable. You know, put yourself in in Paul and Silas' shoes. I mean, how would you be feeling in this case? You know, I know if I was in their shoes, I'd be like, wait a second, what just happened? You know, we went into the city, we were seeing some success, and then we get beaten? Where is God? What is he doing here? This is senseless. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't have come into this city. Well, this must have been incredibly, incredibly discouraging to them. At this point, they might have felt tempted to just abandon their faith. Well, Luke tells us that around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Oh my gosh! So they, they break out into praise and thanksgiving, and they started singing songs in the middle of the night as they're sitting there licking their wounds. That's unbelievable. Well... What drove Paul and Silas to praise God in what seemed like a God-forsaken situation? Well, Paul and Silas, probably because of their other um, experiences trying to share the message of Christ, understood, first of all, that God didn't make a mistake by throwing them into the city. That God directed them there for a purpose. And secondly, that... God can use even terrible circumstances to further his purposes. And so that's why they were able to praise God even in the midst of this suffering. And so this leads us to our seventh principle that we must maintain an attitude of joy and hope during times of affliction. You know, it's not just that we are able to endure suffering, but that we do so with a good attitude that we do so with joy. You know, it's not enough to withstand suffering while feeling sorry for ourselves. God calls on us for something much greater than that. He says that he wants us to maintain an attitude of hope and joy in what he's doing. You know, that doesn't mean that we're like celebrating whenever something terrible happens in our lives, like we're happy that it's happening. It's not what he's talking about. This biblical concept of joy describes a quiet sense of confidence that God will use even these terrible circumstances or suffering for some sort of good, either in our lives or in the lives of the people around us. And we need to remember, too, in these times of suffering that the world carefully watches us when we suffer. You know, I'm sure that the other prisoners were awakened by the singing and praising of God that, that Paul and Silas were doing. They were probably puzzled by that, wondering, well, what? why are they doing that? It doesn't make any sense. And in the same way, I think that when people know that we're Christians and they see us going through a serious trial in our lives, they're going to take uh, extra notice of us. And if it turns out that we react the same way that everybody else does, it just validates that Christianity, there's there's nothing there for us. Whereas if they sense that we are able to express joy and confidence in God, it might actually pique their interest in investigating Christ. Well, suddenly there was a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken at its foundations And we're told that immediately all of the doors in the prison flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. So, you know, as they are praising God, this incredible miracle takes place. Well, the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open and he assumed that the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted out. He said, stop, don't kill yourself. We're all here. So Luke introduces our third character in this story, this guy, a jailer. We know a little bit about him where uh, Luke tells us that this guy uh, was driven by his sense of duty and his ability to, to do his job well, so much so that as soon as he thought these prisoners had escaped, he was ready to kill himself. You know, in the ancient world, if you were in charge of guarding some prisoners, um, If one of your prisoners escaped, that meant that your life was at stake. The jailer knew that uh, odds are he wasn't going to survive this, and so he was ready to kill himself. But Paul and uh, Silas stopped him. The jailer called for the lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's not clear why he asked this question. Um, maybe he heard Paul and Silas praising God and heard the content of their songs. Uh, Maybe, you know, he was walking through the Agora as this uh, crazed young woman was screaming, these guys are, you know, representatives of God Most High. You should listen to them to find out how to be saved. Either way, he asks the right question. Well, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Now, look at what Paul says here. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Get your life together. Clean up your act. And then turn to God and believe and be saved. He doesn't say, Go to church, stop sinning all the time, and then believe, and then you will be saved. He doesn't say that. He says unequivocally, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. That's the way that we forge a relationship with God, is simply by trusting God and what he's done. You know, you might be somebody who's investigating Christianity and I'm not really sure that there's any way to simplify the message of Christ more than this statement. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. The Bible teaches that the gulf that exists between us and God due to our sin, that that was bridged by what Jesus has done on the cross, that he died in order to forgive us. And that simply by believing in him, not in the sense of like having you know, this intellectual belief, sort of like, I believe that Abraham uh, Lincoln existed or something like that, but really more like a trust. I trust that what Jesus has done for me, that that applies to the things I've done wrong, that at that moment that we turn to God, that we can be saved. Well, even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds and he and everyone in the household were immediately baptized He brought them into the house and set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. And so all of this was an outward expression of the inward joy that they were feeling because of this newfound relationship with God. Well, in verse 35, we're told the next morning that the city officials sent the police to get the jailer, let those men go. Apparently, all of this happened in the middle of the night, the jailer smuggled them out of the, the prison and into his house, took care of them, fed him a meal, and then brought them back into the jail cell to make sure that it seemed like nothing had happened. Well, when they show up, they're like, let these guys go. And so the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said, you and Silas are free to go. Go in peace. Like, get out of here. Scram. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? You know, at this moment, uh, the needle's just skipping off the record. You're like, what? They're Roman citizens? Uh, according to ancient Roman law, you could not beat or execute a Roman citizen without trial. And to violate a Roman citizen's rights like that would have been a serious offense against the Roman government. And so Paul was just sitting there with this information the entire time. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city quietly like, please just go. We, we're really sorry about what happened. Uh, and this leads us then to principle number eight, which is that God can use even the worst circumstances or suffering for his purpose. You know, it's interesting that Paul, even though he was sitting on this trump card, so to speak, that he was a Roman citizen, he never pulled it out. Even though he knew that the, the magistrate was ordering his beating and imprisonment. He just let it happen. Why would he do that? That doesn't make any sense. I think that he was probably operating on two basic assumptions. Number one, God led him to this place. He knew that for a fact. Remember, he got that vision from the man of Macedonia who said, come, we need you here. So it wasn't a mistake that they were in this city. And number two, he understood that God could use suffering in his own life in order to further his purposes. And so probably as these events were unfolding, as the magistrate was ordering his beating and imprisonment, those two facts snapped into place in his mind. And instead of deciding to deliver himself by telling these these magistrates that he was a Roman citizen, he decided to allow God to deliver him. Well, in most cases, we don't really see the results until much later. You know, sometimes we're in the middle of suffering. We're uh, thrown right into the middle of something terrible. And it's really hard for us to be able to see even, you know, a few steps in front of us. We can't see what God's doing. Often we're in a state of confusion, which adds to the suffering we might be feeling. And yet, often, maybe months, years, or even decades later, we start to see all that God has done through these tragic events, not only in our lives, but also to further his kingdom in miraculous ways. You know, later on, about 10 10 years later, Paul writes this letter to the believers in Philippi. And commentators have noticed that one thing that is conspicuously missing from the epistle is any mention of persecution. It's likely that what happened here was that uh, Paul negotiated, okay, don't mess with the Christians here and we'll leave quietly. And uh, as you're escorting us out of the city, make sure to pick us up some sandwiches too. I I like rye bread. Well, in verse 40, we're told when Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia and they were met with the believers and encouraged them once more and then they left town. So there you have the story of Paul and Silas in Philippi. Now let's draw a few points of application. I think first of all, you know, if you're here tonight and maybe you are a believer in Christ, find out why people are so excited about serving God here. Uh, Why... People would sacrifice their time, their effort, their energy into trying to serve God. Because really, um, what God has in store for us is really the most important and exciting cause that you can devote your life to. So many of us are holding on to some idealism, and it's actually s- slowly slipping out of our hands as our lives get more and more complicated. And yet, God is offering us this incredible opportunity to give our lives to a cause, a purpose, much greater than ourselves, and to carry out a mission that's going to have eternal implications. And finally, if you're here tonight and you don't know God personally, find out what gave Lydia and the Philippian jailer so much joy. You have an opportunity to do that tonight. You have an opportunity to turn to God in your heart and just believe like what Luke said. And at that moment, you can be saved. You know, Lord, I'm struck most by um, the incredible suffering that Paul and Silas underwent in this city and the attitude that they had in reaction to it. I'm not certain that I'm there yet. And, uh, but I, I want to get to that place, Lord, where um, <clears throat> I'm able to suffer victoriously, clinging on to your hope and joy that you offer in Christ. And um, we pray for those of us who might be experiencing suffering right now, that um, we would be reminded to uh, take a posture of faith and to maintain an attitude of joy during these times, trusting that you are sovereign over all events in history. And uh, finally, I pray for those of us, Lord, who may not know you and may sense that you are um, calling on us to turn to you and to uh, start a relationship with you. We pray that, uh, you know, right now in their hearts that they would believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved, as Paul said. And we thank you for anyone who did that. In your name, amen.